If you could turn in your Bibles, please, to um, Galatians chapter 5. Galatians 5, we'll look at, uh, well, we'll read from verse 16 uh, through to the end of the chapter. We'll be looking specifically at verses uh, 22 and 23 over the next few weeks. So if you have Galatians 5. Let us hear the word of God. Verse 16. Paul writes, Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited provoking one another, envying one another. Well, beloved, having looked at the subject of love, as it was found in 1 Corinthians 13, um, I pray a foundation will have been laid for the first of these studies on the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians chapter 5. So, as I said, our our focus in coming weeks will center on this uh, equally important and challenging uh, portion of Scripture were these couple of verses found in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Now, if you remember, one of the things that came through in our study of love from 1 Corinthians 13 was the fact that biblical love is radically different from the world's idea of love. Therefore, it's clear as night follows day that the church of Jesus Christ should be radically different from the world. Sadly, there are so many places that call themselves churches and they are not radically different from the world. Uh, They mimic the world in in many respects, Uh, mimic the world with respect even to their worship with their smoke machines and their groups up at the front that uh, are a carbon copy of what you would see at secular uh, uh, concerts. Uh, And so, um, you know, the church should be radically different from the world. If I could put it like this. The local church is the place on earth where the holy God lives. So when people from the outside encounter those who are the gathered 
church. They have the opportunity to see that this is the dwelling place of the holy God with man. Not exclusively so, but certainly so. Therefore, the church is, the church has to be different. You know, we live in a society where the divisions are generally represented along the lines of race, class, and status. In the local church, these things are dismantled by God's grace. Therefore, within the framework of the local church, within the framework of the local congregation, the things that are routinely encountered in society are not to be manifested among us. They are not to be manifested in the church of Jesus Christ. That's why when Paul prays for the Ephesian church, among other things that he prays for, he prays in Ephesians 3 verse 17 that they would be rooted and grounded in love. He prays for the pervasive impact of the love of God, that that may be tangible, or at least almost tangible, within the congregation. Because the working out of that love and the manifestation of that biblical love will mark them out as different, certainly from Ephesian society to which he wrote and to our society in which we live. Now, I'm sure we have uh, read the poster, saw the T-shirt, maybe even you've worn the T-shirt. If it was a crime to be a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Now, if I could tweak that just a little bit. If it were a crime to be a congregation where the love of God is so manifested among us, that these barriers and boundaries and divisions of culture were eradicated. If that, if that were a crime, would there be enough evidence of that eradication at Alton Park Baptist Church for us to be convicted? In other words, would the powers that be, would they be able to come into this place, investigate and say, Yes, that's a place that's going to have to be punished because they are dismantling the very structures of society as we know them. Now, of course, the upshot of that is the congregations are made up of individuals who have been saved by the grace of Almighty God. So, It's impossible to ask the question generically without asking the question and facing up to the question personally, privately, individually. And so are we, is one, as he is confronted with this question, am I in every way Making the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ attractive? Does my character make people want to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ? That's the question. 
Not does my ability to articulate the gospel make people want to believe the gospel. That's a fair question. It's an important question. Nor is the question, does my ability to be an apologist for the gospel and for the truth of the Bible make people want to believe it? Friends, the question is, living as I do, in this godless, alien, foreign, worldly environment, does my character as a Christian make the gospel so attractive to the people out there that they actually want to believe it? You know, Peter, writing to the scattered believers in his day, in, a, in an alien environment, uh, he says to them, now you, you're fo- you folks, you are the faith people. You're the people who have come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're the ones who have faith in Jesus Christ. And I want you to go out into that world. And I want you to talk to people about the nature of faith in Jesus. And he says to them, listen to what I want you to do. Make sure that you make every effort to to, uh, supplement your faith with love. Okay, so you supplement your faith. uh, He starts off, doesn't he, first of all, supplement your faith with virtue. Okay, so he has faith. And then he says, supplement it with virtue. With virtue, he says, add knowledge. To knowledge add self-control. To self-control, he says, add perseverance. To perseverance, add godliness. To godliness, he says, add brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, love. Okay, so you read Peter's little paragraph later, you'll see how Peter actually begins with faith and he ends with love. It's the recurring emphasis in the epistles, whether it's John or whether it's James or whether it's Peter, or as we've been seeing on Wednesday evenings in the little epistle of Jude, the same thing is said again and again. You know, faith and love. And Paul encourages believers at Colossae, as he encourages them to work out their faith. He says to them, you walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him. Being fruitful in every good work. So our look at, uh, at Galatians 5, 22 and 23 will provide a picture of practical godliness. People say, what does it look like to be holy? How can you be holy? Well, Galatians 5, 22 and 23 provide the answer. People ask, what does it look like to be like Christ? How do I work that out practically in my life? Well, Galatians 5, 22 and 23 tell us what it looks like to be like Christ. Now, of course, this is in keeping with the whole of the Bible. In the Old Testament, God describes Israel, his people, as a fruitful fine. A fruitful fine that he brought out of Egypt and he cursed for them in the wilderness. And so... uh, God's people are to bear fruit, bear evidence of Christ in the life, of Christ-likeness in the life. 
Remember how the psalmist opens the book of Psalms with one who is like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in due season. And Jesus says to the disciples, I am the fine, you are the branches. If a branch does not bear fruit, now get this, if a branch does not bear fruit, it is cut off and is thrown into the fire. And challengingly, Jesus says to them, true disciples will be recognizable by their fruit. So we won't be recognizable, first of all, as a result of the things we say, but as a result of the evident fruitfulness in our lives. What kind of fruit? Well, we've just been reading about it. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, fruitfulness, or faithfulness, sorry, gentleness, self-control. Very challenging, isn't it? Now, in the light of that, beloved, let me just make a number of statements that you can check out for yourselves. First thing that we need to notice about this fruit is that it's a consequence of our having been brought to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you born again this morning? Have you ever been brought to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? You know, all the way through the letter of the Galatians. Paul is making sure that the readers understand the wonder of what it means to be in Christ. Oh, the wonder of all wonders. Beloved, are you lost in wonder, love, and praise at what God has done for you in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, sometimes we are so familiar with these things that we lose sight of the wonder of it. Oh, what a wonder it is, what it means to be in Christ, to be adopted into the household of faith, to be washed and cleansed. If you have never come to the Lord Jesus Christ, why not? Why have you never come to my lovely Savior who comes so tenderly and gently and he bids you come as he bids Zacchaeus come to himself, as he bid Nicodemus come to himself? What is holding you back from surrendering your life to the Lord Jesus Christ? And if you have done it, why don't you show the profession of that By being baptized in profession of your faith as the Lord Jesus Christ says. You you can say, I love Jesus, but you've never been baptized. Why not? Because Jesus says, if you are a believer in me, show it by going through those waters of baptism. Let people rejoice in the wonder of what God has done in your soul. Peter here, Paul here, he's addressing these Galatian churches. And he's saying to them, you know, the the folks in Galatia, the problem was uh, there were other people coming in suggesting, you know, that the work of Christ needed to be added to. They had to supplement the work of Christ. What he did on the cross wasn't enough. There has to be other external factors involved, and namely, classically, uh, circumcision. 
This isn't the study of Galatians, so I'm not going to go into the whole subject of circumcision. Uh, But friends, Paul is writing here to these uh, churches. And he's making it clear from the very beginning that this exhortation and this encouragement is in light of the fact that those to whom he writes are according to Galatians 1, verse 4, those who have been delivered. Delivered from what? Delivered from hell. Have you ever been delivered, beloved? He writes to them and he says, Jesus has given himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil age. Are you delivered from this present evil age? Come on, I don't need to go around each one of you and ask you individually, do you believe that we live in a present evil age? Of course you do. Can't read your morning papers without putting your head in your hands and saying, what on earth? Madness prevails. We live in a present evil age. Why do you not want delivered from that if you're not professing faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? And Paul writes and he says, this is why Jesus has come. In Galatians 4, verse 5, it is to those who have been redeemed. You're in the slave market. Christ comes and he redeems you. He buys you from slavery and you receive adoption as sons. In chapter 5, it is those who have been set free in the Lord Jesus Christ that he's writing this wonderful epistle to. It's very important, beloved, that we get this. That is the consequence of the wonder, yes, the wonder of God's grace to us in Jesus Christ that produces this real fruit in the life when you're in Christ. The fruit is not artificial. It's not plastic. It's not superficial. This is fruit which emerges as a result of life that is grounded, rooted in the Lord Jesus Christ. You might be still still sitting and saying, well, but Billy, what life? Well, it's the life of the Lord Jesus Christ implanted in us by the blessed Holy Spirit. Galatians 5.24, those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires, recognizing all that's involved in being converted. So the fruit is not produced by us. The fruit is produced in us. It's organic. It's not mechanical. Now, push the pause pause button for a second. Just let us drive this home because this is very important. It's possible for a person interested in religion or concerned about these things to create, generate something of an inward change in their habits without ever having experienced an inward change in the heart. Okay, did you get that? It is possible for someone to create something of an outward change in their habits without there ever being an inward change in the heart. And that that never works. Because the life that is produced, the fruit in the life that is produced by the Lord Jesus Christ and through the Spirit is implanted within the believer. 
It's not something you generate in your own strength. Now, the New Testament consistently warns of the danger of deceiving ourselves in this respect. And the the New Testament calls us to examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. And, of course, that causes us to shuffle a little bit in the seats because, you know, we don't like to do that. It's a bit like getting, you know, the letter from the hospital and you have to go for your scan for this, that, or the other. And you think, "Mm, not sure I want to do that. I feel healthy enough. I don't want to be told that something might be wrong. It's a little bit uncomfortable, doesn't it? But like it or not, the letter comes. It's up to yourself what you do with it. And like it or not, the Bible does say in 2 Corinthians 13, verses 5 and 6, examine yourselves as to whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you're disqualified. How do you know you're not disqualified? Test yourself. Examine yourself. As Paul goes on to say, but I trust that you will know that you're not disqualified. Why will you know you're not disqualified? Because you examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. As Martin Luther puts it, it's faith alone that saves. But the faith that saves is not alone. Or to put it perhaps in a more contemporary way, we are not saved by fruit, but by faith. But not fruitless faith. How do you know that the plant is alive because of the fruit that it produces? Otherwise, it's an indication of death. So friends, that's the first very important statement because it's very easy to go to a church where you'll get a little series on the fruit of the Spirit, which essentially goes something like this. You know, try to be a little more more loving. Just try to be a little more patient. Try to be a little more joyful. And it's just one chronicle of despair because you're thinking, I try my best and I don't even come close. I try my best and it doesn't work. Of course it doesn't work. Of course there's no life if you're trying to produce it yourself. You know, do your best to do A, B, C and D. You see, friends, we can only work out what the Spirit of God works in. And that's the test. So is there any fruit? You may be a Christian looking back over decades of a profession of faith. But I'm saying, is there any fruit? Is there any fruit in your life? Examine yourself and see. It's challenging, isn't it? Second statement, growth in this regard, growth in fruitfulness is evidence of the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. To use the words of Paul to the Philippians, the work which God began in us, he will bring it to completion. And as he says in Galatians 2.20, along the same lines, it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So we recognize that the evidence here, well, the evidences here are an indication of the fact of God's goodness to us. In other words, the work of God within us to produce fruit is 
as a result of something that has happened instantaneously, whereby he has re- regenerated us by the power of the Holy Spirit. We're born again. He works in us, and these graces begin to manifest in our lives. Is the evidence of that there? And while the production of that fruit is something that takes place continuously, it has to be said often it takes place very quietly, almost imperceptibly, in a non-hurried way, and a process that is often very lengthy. And again, it's important to bear that in mind. It's important to bear it in mind, beloved, because some of us are aware of the fact that we're not as fruitful as we might be. We're not as fruitful as we want to be. And of course, we obviously need to look at those things, and that's why we're conducting this little, one of the reasons why we're conducting this little uh, series. But on the other hand, we need to be encouraged by the promise that this fruit will be produced in us. That's what God promises to do for his people. And then we need to be patient. Okay, so there has to be patience also. Don't want this to be sort of like a a council of despair to yourselves this morning. You know, saying, are these things present? You're looking at your life and saying, well, they're not present as much as it could be and go out depressed. Um, Yes, it's important to examine ourselves, but it's also important to remember that we need to be patient. You know, uh, in the world of nature, there are seasons. Uh, we've got uh, summer, autumn, winter, etc., spring. Uh, and sometimes with our souls, spiritually speaking, there are, there are seasons. Periods where it would appear that nothing is happening. It, it seems like it's winter time in our souls. But as sure as springtime comes in nature, springtime comes in the soul. And in nature there are shoots and there are little, you know spurts of growth and there is evidence of uh, of life and so it is with the gospel so it is with the spirit of god working in the soul there is evidence of the transforming power of the gospel of jesus christ evident in the life and the third thing to notice is that this fruit is singular now you just look at the text for a moment You see what it says? For the fruit of the Spirit is. Not the fruits of the Spirit are. Now, I know that we sometimes lapse into laziness and we talk about the fruits of the Spirit. It's not the fruits of the Spirit. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's one fruit. This is in contrast, obviously, to the spiritual gifts. You know, when Paul is... uh, writing about the spiritual gifts to the Romans, the Ephesians, classically to the Corinthians. He says, gifts are a portion to the church in various ways, as God pleases, in order that together we might become all that God wants us to be, as a household of faith. Now, all of those gifts are, are shared, are not shared by all alike. But in relationship to the fruit, it's different. Because these nine graces of Christian character together form one 
indivisible uh, fruit of the Spirit. Now, again, that's important because uh, some of us are temperamentally able to identify with you know, certain elements more than others. So it's important that we bear this in mind also. You know, someone's, someone's just a nice person. They're just generally nice. You know, if you weren't a Christian, you would still be kind of nice. You're always nice. You're always kind. You know what I mean? And that's your temperament. And someone's gentle. And if they weren't Christians, they, they would be, you know, still a gentle soul. And so the temptation is that you say, yeah, well, I have the food of gentleness. It's your temperament. But the temptation is, you say, I have the, the fruit of gentleness, you know, but I'm a bit weak on the, on the peace thing. And so I'll try and work on that area. And someone who has peace can compensate in that area while I come up to speed. No, that's not it at all, friends. John Stott puts it perfectly. When he says the Spirit of God is not in the business of making lopsided, uh, lopsided Christians. In other words, he does not produce love without patience, nor does he produce joy without goodness. And you can mix them up any way you choose. But the work of the Spirit of God and the child of God is to create a fully orbed, uh, Christ-like reality that is seen in the life. Now, at the head of this list is, is love. Love, in this instance, if you like, is not so much a trait or a characteristic as it is the inner disposition out of which all of these other things flow. So true love is seen in joyfulness. True love is seen in patience and so on. Paul in Romans 5, verse 5 says that the love of God has been poured out by the Holy Spirit in the life of the Christian. God's love has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. It's a wonderful picture. Uh, it says basically that, you know, this love has been lavished upon us, you know, by the work of the Holy Spirit. And the strange and yet wonderful thing about this is that when you and I think about love and about loving uh, somebody else, if we're honest, more often than not, our expression of love is directly related to the attractiveness or the worthiness of the, of the object of our affection. So we will express love because we find the person attractive. God finds us totally unattractive, and yet he loves us. That's the way the love of God is manifest to us. And do we love the unlovely? You know, in Deuteronomy 7, verse 7, you have that immense thought that God set his love upon you, says Moses, uh, not because you were more in number than any other people. No, he says, God loved you because he loved you. There wasn't anything attractive about yourselves. So what does that mean? Well, basically... Well, it means what it says in the 10. God loves you because he loves you. He loves you 
He loves us with no uh, merit, nothing to say, well, this is why God loved me. No, his love flows to us. And then having flowed to us in Christ, it should flow through us to others. That love is both Godward and manward. All the way through the Old Testament, God is to be loved with all the heart, the soul, the mind, the strength. We're to love our neighbors, obviously, as ourselves, Godward, manward. And that, uh, Jesus says, is the summation of the great, com- uh, the great commandment. In fact, our love for our fellow man is the validation of our expression, or of our expressed love for God. So what then is this love that is both Godward and manward? Well, very briefly, and summing up for this morning, here are, here are three things, briefly as we close. I'm, obviously, I'm not going to expound love. We've already done that with 1 Corinthians 13, okay? So three things briefly as we close, and some of this will harken back to what we looked at at 1 Corinthians 13. But first... The nature of this love is that it takes the initiative. The love of God is an initiative-taking love. For God so loved the world that he gave. God moved first. In fact, genuine love always takes the initiative. If you're involved in an argument, love is the one that takes the initiative. Love is the one that takes the first step. Whether you're wrong or right, love should take the initiative doesn't always, but it should. Secondly, it forgives with or without apologies for the wrong done. This is something, well, this is saying the same thing from the other side. You know, it's not uncommon for us to say, well, I'm prepared to forgive if. I'm prepared to forgive provided that. I'm provided I'm prepared to forgive, provided that he or she can come to me first and apologize or acknowledge that they were as bad. And we'll start with that. That'll get us going. Not this love in the Bible. You know, Michael Parkinson died during the week. And I don't know if any of you watched any of his interviews. But uh, that interview with Meg Ryan has surfaced on, uh, on the media. Did any of us ever watch that interview with Meg Grant? Well, you can shake our heads or not. I know a couple have. No, you haven't. Well, you could watch it. It surfaced again. Parkinson was being condescending. Horrible, really. And the two of them, wouldn't say sparks were flying, but they weren't hitting it off. And years afterwards, Parkinson was interviewed, and you know what... What uh, interviews are most memorable? What ones do you want to forget? You know, the one with Muhammad Ali is the one, one of the ones most memorable. Meg Ryan, that's the one I want to forget. And he was asked, well, if you could meet Meg Ryan today, what would you say? And he said, well, I would say sorry. I would say sorry, but first of all, she would have to acknowledge that she was as bad. You know, that's how the world gets on. Spiritually, we can't say that. Listen, friends, we cannot lay down conditions if we are Christians. Because God says to us, I love you unconditionally. 
And if you ever say to a brother or sister in Christ, I will forgive you if, or I will forgive you provided that, what you're saying is that the love of God has not really reached your heart the way it should. Jesus Christ came and sought me out when I wasn't looking for him. And he forgave all my transgressions. And so am I going to hold some niggling offense against a dear brother and dear sister in Christ? Not have I been overwhelmed by the love of God in Christ as manifested in that wonderful cross in Calvary's Hill. You see, the love of God is expressed in forgiveness. It takes the initiative. It, takes a, it forgives with or without apologies for the wrong done. And thirdly, this love cannot ignore the needs of a brother or sister. First John three seventeen, our brother John would have touched on this last Sunday evening. Whoever has this world's good sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him. How does the love of God abide in him? See, beloved, the challenge that comes here, you know, you can't say you love God. You know, you can't say you sing these wonderful hymns that you know a lot about the Bible and Christian doctrine. And God says back, well, what about the love thing? How's that going? How's that working out in your life? You know, is there a fragrance about your life? Is there a fragrance about the church that shows people how attractive the gospel is, how attractive Christ is? You know, could somebody walk in off the street into this place and say, what's right with these people? What's right with these people? Or would walk in and say, you know, what is wrong with those people? Because right is the right response, obviously. It's quite staggering, isn't it? This love, you see, is supernatural. It's not ours by inheritance or by temperament. It's the work of the Spirit of God in our lives. Therefore, we're totally dependent. Now, that doesn't mean that we're, you know, not to do anything. Of course not. We're not to be passive. Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That sounds like something we're supposed to do. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who works in us both to will and to do for his good pleasure. You see, friends, the exhortations are in the light of the infusion which we experience as a result of being in Christ. Yeah, there is no doubt that we are imperfect in our fruitfulness. No doubt that we are a work in progress. No doubt that we will obviously ultimately have to wait until the day when all sin is removed and uh, we're clothed in glory. You know, when we'll be what we ought to be. No doubt about that. But in the meantime, what the Bible is saying is with the enablement of the Spirit of God, we are to make sure that the graces which are made available to us, the traits of Christian character, will be manifested in us. It's not what Paul says in Second Corinthians five seventeen, and Ephesians four. Put on the new man which is created according to God and true righteousness and holiness. Put on the new man. It's not what he says in Titus about adoring adorning yourself, clothing yourself with the gospel. 
You see, friends, with this I finish, you grow in the Christian life by divine grace. It's also true that it's our duty to grow in grace. And so as I often exhort you, it's very, very important that you read your Bible. Very, very important that you pray. Very important that you're in fellowship with God's people. Very important that you're attending faithfully, regularly, the place of public worship. Vitally important that you do not absent yourself from the Lord's table. Because, friends, the Holy Spirit uses means to produce these fruits in our, this fruit in our life. And the means that he uses is the fellowship of God's people, the household of faith, the ministry of the word, the reading and the praying. The neglect of these means will impact our fruitfulness. These are the means that God uses to prune the dead stuff and to energize and enliven the living stuff. Amen.